I, what I have tonight is really not, not really a teaching. I, I don't think I've done this too much. I've never done it in leaders' advance that I know of. At least I don't think it's a teaching. I, I have a prophetic, a prophetic word that I, it's going to kind of come in, in a form of a teaching. You'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. We, when Danny and I were in South Africa, um, we uh, went to um, two churches, one in, I'm sorry, help me, Durban, and the other was in Johannesburg, right? And in one of the churches, um, I got up to preach, and maybe 10 minutes before I got up to preach, I felt like the Lord, well, he totally changed my message, but I didn't feel like it was just a, like a teaching message. I felt like it was an exhortation and a prophetic declaration over the body. And, and, um, and so tonight I, I feel prompted to kind of share some of this message with, with you, and we'll just see where it goes. So in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, it's the story of uh, Elisha. And um, I'll, I'll, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. But we'll just start from verse 1 and read a little bit here. Elisha the Tishbite was one of the settlers. Everybody say settlers. How many of you know the prophets need to be settlers? They need to be people who settle down. We're, we're, the outhouse prophets, are that era is over. We need, we need in-house prophets who actually want to be a part of the body. And he was one of the settlers. And he... Uh, <clears throat> Of Gilad, and he and said to, and he said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be no dew or rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go from here and turn eastward and hide yourself at the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook that I have commanded the ravens to bribe for you there. So he went there and did according to the word of the Lord, and he, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink and eat from the, and he would drink from the brook. He would eat and drink from the brook. He would drink from the brook, is what it actually says. Because <laughs> you can't eat in the brook <laughs> unless there's fish in the brook, which you probably didn't think of. And... <laughs> And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And the Lord said to him, I want you to go, arise and go to Zareph, which belongs to Simeon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. And just um, for the sake of time, this is really an interesting story, but I feel like it's a prophetic word for a whole bunch of people in here that Elijah has... Elijah has a prophetic word, and the prophetic word is, it isn't going to rain. Now, this is Old Testament, Old Covenant, and we know Matthew 5.43, Jesus said um, that, that in, in the New Testament that the Father makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so we live on this side of the cross, but on the other side of the cross, when you were unrighteous, when you, you know, uh, Deuteronomy 28, uh, God said, these are all the curses that will happen if you serve other gods. And one of them was that it wouldn't rain in the land. And so Elijah sees that it's raining. He, he, he knows it's raining in the land and that Ahab and Jezebel are ruling. And so he makes a prophetic declaration. He stops the rain. And the Lord says to him immediately after he stops the rain, he says, go over to this brook. And there um, you'll drink from the brook and the ravens will feed you there. And so he's at the brook and he's uh, obviously eating and drinking. And the brook dries up. Now, the interesting uh, part of this, and I'm, you've probably thought through this, but this, this is a prophetic declaration, uh, is that the brook dries up because of Elijah's ministry. Elijah stops the rain, and he becomes a casualty of his own ministry. And, he's, and the Lord sends him to the brook. Now, here's this challenge to me. Sometimes when the Lord sends us someplace... We think that he's going to take care of us forever at the last place he prophesied to us. And so when the brook dries up, instead of looking for a new place to go, we complain, about, we complain to the Lord about sending us to a brook that dried up in the midst of, our, of a famine. And I think that sometimes we hang on to words too long. That, that prophetic words often have a shelf life. And, and the, <laughs> Are you following me? That it's not the, pro, not the preceding word. God, you know, Jesus said 
Man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's not what God said, but what God's saying is, that's manna, that's bread to our soul, that's bread to our, to, our, to our heart, to our spirit. And I think that like manna had a, you know, a lifespan of one day except for on the Sabbath day, it would last two days. I think that oftentimes prophetic declarations have a season and a time in which they come and they expire and they go. And the word of the Lord to Elijah here was, go to the brook and I'll provide for you there. And he goes to the brook and you know that God provided, him, God provided for him for a season, but that brook dried up. And many of you are going through seasons where your ministry is actually, the fruit of your ministry has dried up your brook. And you think that something's wrong, but I'm telling you that you're in a new season. That God's about to do something that God wants to do. If you'll stop complaining and start asking again, there's a new word. Stop complaining that the prophetic word that God gave you didn't work, it didn't come to pass. I want to proclaim to you that that prophetic word had a season. That season's over and there's a new word. There's a new word. And, um, and, and, and so God tells him to go to this, to this widow and this is, this is really interesting to me. He goes to this widow's, the, the place that God tells him to go. He gets to the widow's house, and he's, uh, to the city, and he sees the widow that God told him to connect with. And he says to her, I want you to give me some water. It, they're in a famine. Give me, she's, she has a little jar of water. She says, give me some of your water. And she said, well, okay. And she, she said, I'll go get you a little bit of water. And, and he said, um... And by the way, bring me some bread. And she turns to him and she said, bring you some bread. Are you serious? She said, I have a little bit of bread and I'm going to make this bread for me and my son and we're going to eat it and then we're going to die. And he said, okay, well, go ahead and do that. (laughs) Go ahead and make yourself a little bit of bread, eat it and die. But give me some of your bread. And she's like, what? And he said, if... And then he says in verse 14, For thus saith the Lord God, The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. And she did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days, and the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, until the word of the Lord, which he had spoken, had come to pass through Elijah. This is, this is a great story. Because now the Lord sends him from a brook that dried up to a woman to provide for him, a widow. He tells Elijah exactly who to go to. He goes to the widow, and there's only one problem. Not only does she not have much money, she has no provision. God sends him to a place to feed him that has no provision. Not only can she not feed him, she can't even feed herself. I have a sense that the Lord sends you places and He says, I want you to go to such and such place. I want you to do this thing. And, and you get there and the circumstances are absolutely the opposite of what they're supposed to be. And you're like, I went to the wrong place. And God goes, no, no, no. In your victory is her victory. I didn't send her. I didn't send you here for you. I sent you here for her. I sent you here to make sure that she would eat in the famine. Lord, she doesn't have any food. That's why I sent you here. And the Lord begins to tell Elijah, prophesy to this woman that if he gives her the, this bowl of flour, will not be exhausted. If he gives her this little bit of, uh, uh, um, of oil, a little bit of um, flour, a little bit of water, that it won't be exhausted. And I, I have this sense that there are people going through things. I, I've been feeling it this whole week that... There are lots of people that think they're on the wrong track. And I'm telling you, you're on the right track. You just haven't got the right word yet. And I think that if you'll just press in, there's a word. (laughs) Some of you are broke and you're at the right house. And you think, the circumstances are against me and I, I need to change ministries. I need to change houses. And it's like, no, no, you just need a word for oil and for flour and for water. You just need to hear the word of the Lord. And I, 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 I uh, have this deepest sense 
that um, it's really easy when the brook dries up to, to get disillusioned with God. This is the way it plays out with us. God sent me to the brook. I went there. Ravens helped for a while. I don't know what God's doing. Brook dried up. God sends me to a widow's house. I mean, you think the brook was bad? She ain't got any food. She's going to eat the last bit of food and die. Uh, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of month I've had. And, and it never occurs to us to think, I wonder if there's a miracle here. I wonder if God's going to do something so extraordinary that they'll write books about it in history. And I have the greatest sense that the Lord, that there's going to be 50 books that come out of this room, and the books are going to be your story about going to a widow's house, metaphorically speaking, where there was nothing. And God said, you're at the right place at the right time, and now all you need is the right word. We, um, years ago, we had, a, we had a, um, a man in our church who was a deputy sheriff. His name was Paul Schmidt. In fact, he goes to this church now. Good friends of all of ours. Great, really, really great godly man. And Paul and I used to go to the convalescent hospital in the, on Sunday mornings and minister to the, to the uh, convalescent, to the to elderly people. Elderly, more elderly than Bill and I. Very elderly. And, um, and every morning we would meet there in the parking lot and we would pray every Sunday morning and we would pray for five or ten minutes and then we would go in and we would go room to room and minister to the, to the um, elderly people and then we would, they would wheel some of them into this you know, a little room and we would preach to them there and, and uh, sing hymns and just pray for them. And we were there for an hour or so and we did that for five years. And um, one Sunday morning, we got together to pray like we have always done. Not a very exciting ministry at all, really. We didn't see miracles. We didn't, I mean, we just loved people. Actually, the miracle we, we, it was that we just loved people. And, and, and we enjoyed each other, uh, each other's company. And so one morning, we were just doing what we'd done for, every Sunday for several years. And we just grabbed hands and we prayed, you know, Jesus, let us just minister to people, and we, we, you know, we, we prayed that there would be healing today, that people would be encouraged. And in the midst of this, I, I literally, I, I was, this wasn't premeditated, it wasn't in my heart, I didn't, I didn't think of it before I said it, which is not uncommon for me, but it is when it's prophetic. <laughs> and I heard myself say, in the middle of this prayer that we were praying for the convalescent hospital, I mean, completely, we weren't talking about this. I'm just trying to say, like, we were talking about the ministry of the convalescent hospital. So this had nothing to do with anything we'd ever talked about. And I heard myself say, you will be the next sheriff of Trinity County. And he looked at me and he said, what did you just say? It was like, it, it was like so off subject. I said, I think I said, you're going to be the next sheriff of Trinity County. He goes, wow, that's, that's amazing. Okay, so we go in and we do the ministry and, and, and we have some conversations after that. And, and, um, and, and Danny, Danny is a good friend with, his, with Paul too and, and Bill. And, and so we have this conversation and um, Paul decides that he's going to run for sheriff of Trinity County. And the, one, of the, um, one of the rules, the, the, the policies um, of our county at the time, Trinity County, small county, Small county of thirteen, fourteen thousand people, was if the incumbent pres- if the incumbent sheriff runs, and you're a deputy sheriff, you have to come off of the force to run against the incumbent. And so the incumbent sheriff, who had like won five terms, been sheriff forever, um, he was running. So Paul quit his job, moved to Reading, and worked as a uh, foster parent. Him and his wife Liz worked as a foster parent for the nine, ten months while they ran their campaign. So uh, we were all, you know, we didn't know anything about campaigning, and he asked Danny and I if we'd be his campaign managers, and we, we didn't know what we were doing. We're like, sure, you know, what's our budget, you know? And, it, you know, it was in the hundreds. <laughs> we didn't have much to work with. And so we, uh, you know, we were running this campaign, and there was 
I remember distinctly there was nine, nine people running for sheriff that year, including the incumbent sheriff, who I said, I think he'd won five terms or maybe six. Been sheriff for like ever. And, um, and so, so we, we were all excited because we had the word of the Lord and we had, you know, we, we were, the church got behind him. And, uh, and so at the preliminary, you know, uh, what do you call it? Primaries. At the primaries, we all gathered at the courthouse, a bunch of us, probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 of us from the church. And we were watching as the different, you know, sectors of, the, of, of our community came in, the results. And, and anyway, that night we left, and I think Paul took seventh, seventh place. He took seventh place on the primary. Only number one and two are in the final race. And we left, and we were discouraged. I mean, no, we weren't discouraged. We were sick. We were disillusioned. We were sick. I was really sick. I was like, well, it was my first bad prophetic word, because I hadn't given many. And so... So I'm like, oh, I hope they don't stone me. And, and you, have to, you have to kind of understand, like, Paul is a man of great faith. So he, he's like, we're going to win. You know, and we're like, yeah, we're going to win because Paul believes God. And we believe Paul. <laughs> you know, Paul's just, a, you know, he's just a, he's a force to be reckoned with. And so... Anyway, so he takes seventh place. And, you know, I don't know what the other guys were thinking, but I went home and cried. That was on Tuesday, of course. The, um, and so Saturday morning, at 5 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. In those days, we had phones that rang <laughs> right next to my bed. So I pick it up. I'm, I'm thinking, it's an emergency. I mean, who calls you at 5 in the morning? I pick up the phone. I'm like, hello? Hello? He's like, Hey! This is Paul Schmidt. I'm like, yeah, man, what's, what's wrong, man? You all right? He's like, yeah, yeah. Hey, I feel like the Lord told me I'm supposed to run as a write-in, as a write-in candidate. I'm like, what, dude, what are, you, what are you talking about? He said, remember that prophetic word you gave me? I said, dude, can we just forget that prophetic word? <laughs> what I said to him on the phone. I go, man, can we forget that prophetic word? That thing is tormenting the heck out of me, man. He said, no, no, I believe that was the word of the Lord. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, we all love you, Paul. <laughs> right now, I'd just like to get up in front of the congregation and apologize, if you don't mind. It'd just be a lot easier. He goes, no, no, I, 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 I believe, I was, I was praying this morning, and, and, and I felt like the Lord said, do you believe me? And he's like, I believe you. And, and he goes, all right. Then the Lord tells him, then I want you to run as a write-in candidate. And write-in candidate means you have to write the person's name on the ballot. It's not on. You know, it's person one, person two, and then other. Other. Now, remember, he didn't take third. He took seventh. So, so, so now I'm kind of waking up. I say, what exactly is the write-in? He said, well, you know, he tells me that. I said, dude, can I just be honest with you? He said, yeah. He's all, yeah. I go, you took seventh when you were on the ballot. Seventh. Let it die. He goes, okay. Well, would you pray about it? I said, Goodbye. I hang up. He calls me later on in the afternoon. Did you pray about it? Oh, man. <laughs> Come on, man. you got to help me. I'm like, okay. Well, first of all, i got to tell you something. I, 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 I don't think you're going to win. <laughs> he said, well, God, God said. I said, I know. I said, we already said. We know the word wasn't good. We judged it. It's a bad word. <clears throat> he goes, well, God told me. I'm like, oh. Okay, we're going to do this God told me thing again. So finally, he's very convincing. And he convinced Danny and I to be his campaign managers. <laughs> now, and we have to, you know, they have to go look up the laws because they haven't had a write-in candidate like ever in Weaverville. Think about Weaverville. And we find out, like, we can't have a sign within 400 yards of a polling place and 
it's all this crazy law since we're like, oh man, I'm telling Danny, like, I, you know, we're just doing this because we're friends. So we, you know, we put up signs and, you know, what happens, starts to happen is we start to get, I mean, his faith gets contagious and he's, he's like, we're going to win. You know, God spoke to me again this morning. I'm like, so <laughs> the Sunday before the Tuesday that we're going to vote, Bill brings him up and anoints him as sheriff of Trinity County in front of our church. I mean, that's, that's how convinced, convincing Paul is, and probably God, too. Did you never talk to Paul? Oh, Danny and I did. That's how we got that deception thing on us. Anyway, Tuesday comes... Yeah, Bill, believe me, <laughs> I was faking. <laughs> Tuesday comes, anyway, you know, this is, I'm making a longer story long. Tuesday comes, and the guy wins by a landslide. He's not on the ballot. He wins by a landslide. For months after that, you know, I owned a service station and some shops at the time, and people would come in and say, you know, I, I went in to go. I went in to vote for the you know sheriff, and and um, and I, th- this is a time when you have to push down these these Chad things. You know that those machines, and they say the machine wouldn't go down. <laughs> no, these aren't believers, and they'd be like, I heard a voice say, "Ride in, Paul Schmidt." <laughs> People had dreams that they were supposed to ride in Paul Schmidt. You think about. How many people had to have some kind of encounter to not just barely win, to have a landslide victory? Landslide victory. I think God is like, you know, I think God is like Elijah when he challenges the prophets of Baal, you know, to this duel and and they're trying to like, you know, you know, the altar, remember that? And he and they he wants to call down fire on the altar and he's like, No, no, no. We want to make sure you don't think this is spontaneous combustion. And he starts saying, Pour water on it. Oh, pour some more on it. Pour some more on it. I think some of you are in that place where God keeps pouring water on it. You're like, this is never gonna happen. And God's all, no, when it happens, you're gonna know I was involved. You're gonna know I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> the, the plans of a man belong to the plans belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue belongs to the Lord. The lot is cast, but the decision belongs to the Lord. The horses prepare for the day of battle, but the victory still belongs to the Lord. I tell you, I left that. You know, I, I know we all left that experience changed. I mean, changed. We learned something about God. If God wants to put somebody in, if He wants to make someone president, if He wants to raise somebody up and put somebody down, I'm a, I don't, this isn't a theological statement. This is an experience. He can do it. I watched Him do it. And so sometimes we think, like, something's going wrong, and God's all, no, I just want to make, I want you to know for sure that I did this. I want you to make sure that everybody knows there's no other way this fire could have come down and, and, and you know, cooked this altar and licked up the water and the stones too. I want to get you in a place where when it, it comes through, you can't get the credit. At all. Ever. And it'll be a monument in your life. <laughs> this is a good word. <laughs> Turn to Second Kings. Second Kings. Second Kings chapter four. This is this is such a good word for all of us. But for some of you, your hearts are burning in you. I, I, I can feel it from the front. And you guys all preach. You know what I'm talking about. I can feel it from the front. I realize this isn't a greatly well-articulated word. But it's the word of the Lord for many of you. This is the story of the, one of the 
um, woman of, uh, well, we'll just read it. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, said, Your servant, my husband, is dead. <clears throat> and you know your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take, our, to take my children to be slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? And this is, I, I love this part, because this is the Lord. Like, he's saying, oh, What do you want me to do for you? Like, just ask me, what should I do for you? And, she, and, she's, and just tell me, what should I do for you? And there's no conversation, at least written down here. And, she, and he says, tell me, what do you have in your house? And she says, your maidservant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. And he said, go borrow vessels at large for yourself from your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And she goes in and shut the door behind you, and, and, and you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. And so she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, and they went to, and found vessels for her, and they poured into the vessels. And the vessels were full, and she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said, There's not one more vessel. The oil has stopped. <clears throat> uh, and it says, and then the oil had stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil, pay your debt, you and your sons, you can li- and you can live on the rest. This is, this is an amazing story because she's in a bad place, and Elijah says, what do you have? He doesn't say, see, she's concentrating on what she doesn't have. She doesn't have money. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have a provider in the home. She doesn't have a job. She doesn't have a bank account. And, and, and all she can see is what she does have is creditors who want to take away her children. And I love this because Elisha says to her, what do you have? What do you have? And she says nothing except a little oil. First of all, I want to say this. God don't care what you don't have. I'm hearing tonight this voice in my head. Well, let me tell you all the reasons why we can't be like Bethel. Why we can't be like Bill. Why we can't be like somebody that you admire. Well, here's all the reasons I can't. And I, you know, I don't have. And we don't have money. And we don't have this. And, we don't, and God's saying to you, what do you have? Well, I don't, nothing's significant. I just got a little oil. I just got a little. It ain't even a lot. I just got a little oil. And Elisha says, listen, listen, what I want you to do is go get some jars. And listen, don't get a few. In other words, get a lot of jars. Get a lot of jars. Okay? Go get them from your neighbor. Don't go down the basement and just get a few. Just go to your neighbors and say, I need jars. And you know when the oil quit? When she ran out of jars. Selah. If you'll stop thinking about what you don't have and just go get some containers and say, this is all I got. Can you, can you do this over and over again? You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000, you know why they didn't eat steak? Because the boy's lunch, there was fish and bread. So they ate fish and bread because that's what the boy brought, fish and bread. Jesus multiplies what you have, not what you don't have. He doesn't even care what you don't have. And I'm telling you, I feel like the Lord's taking me into your prayer closet. And you're like, Lord, we don't have, and Lord, we don't, you know, and, and, and the Lord's going, what can I do for you? Well, Lord, let me tell you what we don't have. No, no, I, I don't want to have that conversation with you. What can I do for you? Well, I, I, I don't know what you can do for me. Okay, let's, okay, you don't want to talk about what I can do for you because you have no faith. Okay, let's have another conversation. What do you have? Well, Lord, you know, I'm not very intelligent. I'm not educated. And I, no, can we stop having this conversation? I didn't ask you what you don't have. Well, Lord, what I do have is so little. That's what I want. Just give me, just give me the little that you have. That's all I need. 
In fact, I made sure you just had a little bit so everybody would know it ain't you. This is the word of the Lord for you. I'm telling you, those, the, the worst situation that you're in, the, the people that are in the toughest situation, this word is for you. And the people that are in a great situation, you probably need to get rid of your great stuff and get a little so you can get a bunch more. Just go get some jars. Just find some empty people. Oh Lord, none of the rich people want to come. You know, we don't. You don't need the. You know, the smart, wealthy, and all. Well, you guys have. No, no, you don't understand where we started. He had me. And you think this is rough? You should have seen this thirty years ago. <laughs> the Lord loves rustic. Verse eight. I want to go on. There came a day when Elisha passed over the... I'm sorry, I can't read. And there was a prominent woman. Everybody say a prominent woman. This is a good word for where we're at in the church right now. The Lord wants to raise up prominent women. I'll say one thing about this prominent women thing, because it's really in my heart right now. You know, when God created Adam... He made him in his image and in his likeness, and male and female, he created them. If you oppress women, you don't know, you don't know half of the revelation of God is gone. Because God is not man. He is both male and female. As soon as you oppress, the, the, as soon as you oppress women in culture, you lose half the revelation of the nature of God. God wants to raise up not women. He wants to raise up prominent women. I'm <laughs> making some points. <laughs> there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shumai, wherever that is, and there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat. And she said to her husband, Behold, now perceive, I perceive that this is a holy man. This is a holy man of God passing by us continually. Please let us make a little walled chamber, upper chamber, and let us put a little bed in there with a table and a chair and a lampstand, and it shall be that when he comes, he can turn in here. One day, he came there, Elisha, and he turned into the upper chamber and he rested. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call the Shumanite woman. And so when he called her, she stood before him, and he said to her, say now, behold, you've been taken, well, let me just put it in easy language, You've taken such good care of us. What can we do for you? And he says to her, can, can I speak to the king for you? Can I speak to the commander of the army for you? And she says, I, I live among my people. In other words, the connotation is, I'm, I'm a happy person. <laughs> I don't need you to speak to the king for me. And I don't, need you to, I don't need you to talk to the commander. Life is good. And Gehazi, she, so she leaves. And you can kind of picture Elisha standing there thinking, I want, have you ever tried to buy a present for somebody who has everything? And she just told him, I, I, I don't have any needs. And he's like, I really want to do something for you. I don't have any needs. She leaves, and Gehazi says to Elisha, you know, she doesn't have a son. And her husband's old. So she call, he calls her back. He goes, hey, woman, come back in here. At this time next year, you're going to have a son. And, this is, and she said, verse 16, and he said, at this season next year, you're going to embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, oh, my God, do not lie to your maidservant. Verse 17, the woman conceived and bore a son at the season next year, as Elisha said to her. But this is amazing. This, to me, and this is, this is again, the third prophetic word for, for some of you. He says, you're going to have a son. And she said, no, please, do not lie to me. What is she saying? I have hoped so long 
for a child. Listen, in hope against hope, I am so... Listen, don't you create hope in me and then not have it happen. I can't take it again. And she's upset with him. She's like, no, no, don't promise me that. Don't, this is what I've always wanted. I am not going to believe you because then my heart will be broken. And there's people in here, you have hoped so long for something in your life. You've hoped for something for so long. I'm telling you, I could feel it by the word of the Lord. You have hoped and hoped and hoped and hoped. And now you don't hope anymore. You know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's not what I hope for that's deferred. It's not that I wanted a son, it didn't happen. I wanted a son, it didn't happen. I wanted a son. You know what? I'm sick because I, that my son that I wanted didn't, come, didn't happen. No, no. It's not hope. It's not the thing I hope for gets deferred that makes me sick. It's that I stop hoping. How many know faith is the conviction of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen? In Hebrews chapter, that's Hebrews chapter 11, 1. In verse 13, it says, it's talking about all these great people who did these amazing things, you know, the hall of faith. And it says, and all of these, having received the promise, did not receive them, but having seen them from afar, they welcomed them. How many understand faith sees, hope feels, and love never fails? Faith, see, there's no such thing as blind faith because faith sees. There is such thing as blind hope. In fact, hope is blind until you have faith. Because hope goes, something awesome's about to happen to us. What is it? I don't know. I can feel it. I'm not talking about feel it like in my emotions. I can, it's, Paul, it's Paul Smith. It's the sheriff. I can feel it. How's this going to happen? I, I don't know. I can't yet see it. But see, hope deferred. See, when I stop hoping, I stop. See, hope is what gets me to the porch so that I can, so I begin to look for what God is doing. They did all of these, having received promises from God, did, having received promises from God, did not get what they received. But they saw them from afar, and they welcomed them. How did they do that? They hoped, and they kept their hope on. In hope against hope, Abraham believed. In simple terms, every month, Sarah had a cycle. And every month, he hoped. And every month... It didn't happen. And then she went into menopause, past childbearing. And it said, even though Abraham saw that her womb was as good as dead, yet he did not hope in what he saw, but hoped in what God said. And therefore he became the father of faith because he believed. This woman says, do not lie to me. And I'm telling you, there's a bunch of you. There's several of you in this room. You gave, you stopped hoping. Stopped hoping. It's like, it's too painful. And I want to say this first of all. God is bigger than your pain. I was sharing this morning, I think it was this morning. You know, we go to churches where the pastor will take me inside and say, you know, we believe in healing, but we don't believe that everyone gets healed. We don't believe that God wants to heal everybody. And, you know, and we'll have a conversation, you know. I'm like, well, Jesus healed them all. Well, yeah, I know Jesus healed them all, but we're not Jesus. Well, we're the body of Christ. And we have this dialogue. But what it comes down to is, I don't want to create, I want to leave a lead door that says, you know, 3% of you aren't going to get healed. Here's the problem. If I say 1% of you, Jesus is going to heal 99% of you, but 1% of you, he's not going to heal. You know what? 
80% of the people who are sick will think they're the 1%. And three-quarters of the healings that you would have got, you won't get because you told people there's 1% who won't get healed. And the people who haven't been healed will think, who are sick, will think, I'm the 1%. Surely it's me. Surely I've done this sin. I've, I've done this. I didn't read my Bible long enough. I didn't come to church when I should have. I, you know, whatever. I, I've got 48 reasons why God put me in the 1%. So we all know that if you say, everyone's going to get healed. Experience tells us that we are not at that level yet. But you know what? Teaching people what Jesus did will get us there. And so, I want, I want you to just to say this in your spirit. God is bigger than... You can say it out loud if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Just say, God is bigger, God is bigger than my disappointment. Than my disappointment. I, refuse I refuse to be hopeless, to be hopeless. So, I so I won't be disappointed. What happens if I, what happens if I hope and it doesn't happen? It doesn't happen. But if I don't hope, it won't happen. You know why? Because faith, everything in the kingdom happens by faith. And faith is the conviction of things hoped for. So as soon as I stop hoping, I am not going to have faith for it to ever happen. And then it validates what I already believe. I told you it wasn't going to happen. This is my life. Yeah, it's self-fulfilled prophecies. And Elisha says to her, you know, child, she said, don't lie to me. He didn't say anything else. I just think he gave her the look. You know the look? He's that prophetic look. Like. And she has a child. How are we doing for time? Am I going too late? Okay. Child is in the field working with his father, which is probably teenage years, I would guess. And gets a really bad headache. You know, probably he's having an aneurysm or something. I mean, he gets a bad headache. He, his father r- runs him into the farmhouse. His mom grabs him, takes him up into the prophet's chamber, lays him on the bed, and he dies. Now she's really mad. <laughs> now she's really, she's tasted of what she wanted. And then it died. So she says, um, saddle up a donkey, like she's all calm. Saddle up a donkey for me. And he's like, why are you leaving? She said, it'll be fine. So she rides off to where Elisha's doing a conference. And Elisha sees her from a long ways away. And he says to Gehazi, um, isn't that the Shumanite woman right there? He said, yes. Go out there and see what she wants. So he rides out there. You know, however long it was, it must have been quite a ways. And, she, and he says, you know, um, Elisha wants to know, everything okay? She goes, oh, it's fine, it's great, all's well. So he rides all the way back, he goes, don't know what, guess she wants a visit, all's well. So she gets there, and she says to Elisha, I didn't ask for a child. I didn't ask for a child. Remember Remember that? Elisha's like, he's got no idea what she's talking about. And you gave me a child. And now he's dead. And it's your fault. You brought this on me. I told you I couldn't take another hopeless moment. He says to Gehazi, go take my staff and lay it on the child. I don't know how far it was, but Gehazi has time to ride all the way to her house, lay the staff on the child, nothing happens. Come all the way back and go, (laughs) boss, I laid the staff on him. You know, dead. And the woman, you know, a woman goes with Gehazi there and back, and now she's really mad. Because she wasn't looking for ministry. See, Elisha doesn't know anything about being a part of a family. (laughs) Here we go, last part, last point. He just knows about ministry. 
And she's like, hey, I don't want your servant. I don't want your staff. I want you. You cause this problem. You're going to get in this pain with me. And you're going to mourn with me, young man. Don't, don't, don't write me a check. Don't send me a prayer cloth. Don't send your ministry team. You are part of a family. I made you a part of my family. I built you an upper chamber. I took good care of you. And now you want to solve this by some ministry magic. No, no, no. You come and feel the pain of why I didn't want you to have give me a child in the first place. You come and feel my pain. You come and be part of this family. You understand me? And it's funny because the Lord listens to the Shumanite woman and not to Elisha. And you know the story. He goes and he lays on the boy. He says, Lord, <laughs> this woman's mad. You've got to help me. <laughs> we all, all the husbands said, Amen. Help me, Lord. <laughs> Lord. Lord, help me, this prophet. I'm the only one left, you know. And of course we know the boy comes back to life. But my last point is this. Some of you are lonely. You're in a ministry and you're so used to doing ministry and God's trying to put you in a family. He's built you an upper chamber. He's built you an upper chamber and you know what? I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll tell you this. I know Elisha did amazing stuff for this woman and you know, and their story goes on about their relationship. But I've proposed to you that she taught him something more important than he taught her. She taught him how to be part of a family. And I think the Lord wants us to move from ministry to a family. He wants to teach us that real miracles, you want real miracles? It's not going to be abracadabra, it's going to be get in the trenches with people. Mourn with those who mourn. And I, I believe in, you know, miracles. I, I, you know, we see so many miracles here. There's, there's, and, and we give so many prophetic words. I was telling the prophetic people this morning, the round table, there, there's no possible way you can get in the trench with every person that you minister to. It's absolutely impossible. The point is, is that you're in a trench with somebody. And I remember years ago, I don't know if you remember this, Bill, we were coming back from the mission when in Vacaville, before it was called the mission. And, Bill, you made a statement. You, we were just talking about prophets. And you said, you know how the Bible says that a prophet has honor except for his hometown? Do you remember this conversation we had in the car? You said, I think that every prophet ought to have a place where he doesn't, he's not honored as a prophet. He's just, he's just part of the family. And I think the real test of faithfulness in God is when you go home. When you can raise the dead in your family, you're really ready for the ministry. And I think that we all need help. And and so, you know, this last part of the word, I want to be really careful because... Proverbs says, he who has too many friends comes to ruin. And I watched the pressure of not being able to say no and feeling like people trying, I don't know if they try to, let me, let, me, let me rephrase this. Sometimes people have no idea how much responsibility we have. And I feel like I'm, they think I'm the savior of the world. I think, well, if you pray for me, if you, and I understand the other side of that, and I don't want to preach it tonight because I don't want to undo what I'm doing right now. And there are people in here, you just need to learn how to say no. And you need to learn how to say, that's my ministry team. They have the same Jesus I have. I get that. And, and, but for, for the sake of not undoing this, the edge of this message, we do need to know how to get in the trenches with people and mourn with those who mourn. The, the magic dust is awesome. I like when the Lord does, you know, you wave the wand, you hit the person in the back, you, you know, I love it all, whatever, you know, slug, slug him, Smith, Smith Wigglesworth, slug him in the stomach, you know, I, I love it all, 
Uh, and I love when God does it that way. But, but I'm convinced that we're in a season where God says, no, no, you're going to lay on this boy. I'm convinced that the Lord is like the Shumanite woman. And she's saying, you've been doing ministry, and I'm going to teach you how to do family. And I understand you can't do that with 10,000 people. You can't do it with 1,000 people. You can't even do it with 100 people. But you better be doing it with somebody, because that's where the ministry's going. It's moving from gatherings to covenant. I'm telling you, this is the word of the Lord, that the Lord needs you in covenant. How do you know if you're in covenant? When they're in pain, you don't have to try to work up compassion. You have to try to figure out how to get it off you. You all know what I'm talking about. I can tell you, man, when my kids are hurting, nobody has to say, you know, you just need some compassion. No, no, I need my, my teams around me going, it's going to be okay. I'm like, I'm drowning in, 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 in their pain. And I have to have a team go, listen, look in my face. It's going to be okay. Nobody, when you have family and they're in trouble, nobody has to teach you how to mourn. The reason why a whole bunch of people don't mourn, because you're not in a family. And it's real easy to, you know, pray for Joe, you don't know. And like, you know, somebody comes up and says, you prayed for Joe and, you know, two months ago and he died. And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I know, we all mean it. We really are sorry. And, and, and you're, oh, gosh, I, I'm not trying to be funny and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be rude. You're looking for compassion because you've heard that story. If you've prayed for as many people as we do a thousand times a year. And you're, you're like, I, I need to feel this. But when you're in a family, ain't nobody got to tell you how. You never go home feeling like guilty because you didn't feel something. You're trying to figure out how to do life in this pain. And listen, I'm not trying to say be in pain. I'm saying trying to say be in family. Be in a family because that's where the power is coming from. And, we're, and I'm, I'm telling you, God's making a great shift. And if you don't know how to lay on a boy, it ain't going to be very long before the miracles that you saw ain't going to happen. Because I believe the Lord is so convinced that we are moving into covenant. And you know what? We don't want to be a monument to what was. <laughs> we want to move in what God's doing right now. And I believe that God has given us so much grace to move in ministry and not move in legacy. And um, it's, time, it's time to change. It's time to shift. You know, the struggle is that if you've lived in an orphanage your whole life, you just don't know how to do family. Like, so you hear a message like this, and you're like, oh, my Lord, okay, that's the word of the Lord. I don't even know where to start. You know what? If you just tell the Lord, Lord, I'm willing, he'll find you a Shumanite woman who will build you a chamber. And you're like, you don't know how to do family, but they, I'm telling you, if you're willing, the Lord will figure out somebody who knows how to do family, and they will take you in, and you will do family with them. Only, only, not, only because you're willing. Like, that's the season. Yeah, Danny just sharing in the front row. God puts the lonely in a family. You're like, I'm not lonely. You're not lonely because you're so busy with ministry, you don't have time to be lonely. But if your ministry stopped, ain't nobody coming to your funeral unless you ministered to them. Listen, you know, when I die, I want people to come to my funeral. You know, I already got it all planned. I got it figured out what I wanted to say and who I want to cry and all that. But, but, but I want some people there who are sincerely miss me, not because of my ministry. I want, I want, I want, I want people at my ministry, I want people at my funeral that miss me because of, because of my personhood. Like, I, they miss my, I miss my dad, not I miss his ministry. And so, would you stand? I'm, I want to pray for you all. And maybe you guys can be working out what's appropriate for this message. <laughs> Why don't you put your hand on your heart? And We've been doing this all week. I don't know how many transplants you've had already. <laughs> it's just like, I think I have two hearts. <laughs> I, I, just, I just want to pray for you. Uh, I, and I, I include me in this. 
I just, God, I just pray for, I pray that you'd put us in a family. And those of us that are in a family, that you would deepen our relationships. How many know you can always get deeper? You can always be stronger. God, I pray that you would help us to get deeper and stronger. Lord, help us to realize that sometimes you put us in a family where they have no oil, no bread. But we don't have to live in that poverty spirit. You put us there. You gave us hope. You gave us faith. And you said, that's all you need. Just go get some jars. God, help us. I'm sorry, I need to stop. If you're feeling hopeless in, in, in a certain area of your life, I'm sorry, we just need to do something different. If you're feeling, I, I feel like there's people in here, when I was talking about hope, you're like, dude, that is completely me. Uh, that's me. I, I've given up hope. In fact, when you were talking about hoping again, the pain of even thinking about hoping again hit me in the heart. And, and, and I'll, I'm just, I, I don't know if it helps you, but I, I'll tell you, I went through hell five years ago. And, I, you know, my whole team knows that I, I've shared this story so many times. I'm just trying to be transparent with you to let you know, like, we've all been there. So I don't want you to be embarrassed. And if you're there right now, I, I, listen, like Paul Schmidt <laughs> did for Daddy and I. <laughs> I'm not sure we had a lot of faith. But, you know, you get around Paul, he's like, I'm going to win. I'm like, I'm walking away like this guy is either the craziest man in the world or this guy knows God. And it turned out the latter. And, and, and I just, I, I, I want us to give you hope. If you get some hope, then you'll get some faith. And when you get some faith, you'll start to see what you're feeling. But if that's you, I, I, I'm sorry, but humility is good for us too as leaders. Would you raise your hand? You're feeling hopeless in a major area of your life. And now, obviously, it doesn't mean you're hopeless in your whole life, but you just got, you know, the Shumanite woman, she thinks she's doing great. She tells him, all's well, everything's good, you don't have to talk to the... And then he goes, well, let's talk, to you. let's talk to you about your family. She says, you better not do that to me. So I'm talking about there's an area of your life that was really important to you at one time, and you gave up on it. That's... And if, you have, if, you're, if you're hopeless, that's great. I'm talking to that. No, no. I mean, it's great to raise your hand. You guys know what I mean, man. I'm not Jack Hafer. Just raise your dang hand. Raise your hand. If that word spoke to you, please. Raise it high. Awesome. I want those of you that are around them, I want you to put your hands on them. And listen, I want you to be Paul Schmidt to them. I want you to, I want you, you know what, uh, when my son was going through divorce, I would take him by the face and I'd say, look in my eyes. You're going to live again. You're going to love again. And he would say, it doesn't feel true. And I'd say, it's true. Then I would leave there and I'd, go to the, <laughs> I'd come to work and I'd say, I don't feel like this is true. And they're like, he's going to live again. He's going to love again. I'm like, all right, thank you. I got enough for another hour. <laughs> and I'd go back and help him again. <laughs> and we were like that for months. So I want you just to do, say something to them. Pray for them. No, I'm serious. You guys are all ministers. Do something positive. Don't leave that person in that shape. Maybe if you feel uh, the person who's being prayed for, you might just say, you might just tell them in uh, one sentence what area it is. And you don't, if, you, if it's personal, you don't have to tell them. But if it's not, you might just say, it's about my, my children, it's about my finances, it's about whatever, so they can hone in on what, what God's doing right there in your life. We're going to take two or three minutes for this. So you've got enough time to really do something powerful in their life. Please do not leave these people the same. Please let them leave here saying, I, I got some jars and when I get home, I'm getting me some oil.